If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Back in 2014, Bill Nye, the science guy, famously debated Ken Ham over the question, is creation a viable model for origins? Bill Nye is famous to kids of my generation because he used to get up on his TV show and he would make learning about science fun and cool to those of us uh, who you know, had that little bit of a, a PBS after school learning bent anyway. Uh, it was a good show. Um, he, he, would, uh, he would present it in a way that would make it fun. Uh, but Bill Nye is an avowed uh, evolutionist. And he debated Ken Ham. Ken Ham, now you'll probably recognize that name as the founder of uh, Answers in Genesis and the Creation Museum. And uh, he is a, a, an evangelical who loudly and unashamedly will proclaim a, a six-day creation uh, model as presented in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Uh, he um, debated against Bill Nye on this basis, and as is so often the case in debates like this, um, both sides walked away more firmly entrenched in what they already believed, but they were putting their ideas out there for, the, for people to uh, evaluate. Um, the, the question of the viability of creation being um, you know, a viable model for origins that's, that, that, that's the question they debated, but, but there was a more foundational reason for this. There's a, there's a deeper reason to why Bill Nye presented the side that, that he did. If there is a creator God, if there is somebody who made us, if there is a reason that we are here, then we, uh, then we are responsible to that creator. He, he owns us. He has the rights. We don't have rights. He has the rights. He tells us what to say. Uh, this gets to the root of the, uh, of the argument. By denying there is a creator, it allows you to view the world however you want. If you're saying that evolution was the reason that we're here, if, there, if, if ultimately it was just chaos and we happen to be here, then I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do what you say. I don't, I don't have any reason to believe what you're, what you're saying. Uh, however, if there is a creator, if there is somebody who has made us, if there's somebody who who has given us life and breath, then we have, to, uh, we have a responsibility to that creator. This is, this is the foundational denial that was at the root of that debate. This is the foundational denial that is at the root of, of many of those debates today, and it was no different back in Peter's day. He was engaging and rebuking false teachers. And we saw that in chapter 2. As Pastor Richard and I walked through that chapter, we saw him rebuking false teachers that have come into the church. And, and now we get some insight into part of the argument that they were presenting. The false teachers patently deny that there was a personal God who engaged with creation, or who continued, at least, to engage with creation. Uh, Peter here gives a first-century argument for the existence of God and what implications um, that necessarily uh, arise from that truth and, and, and what that means to our lives. So we pick up today's message at the beginning of chapter 3. It says there, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. 
they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all the things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of, of these, the world uh, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. May God bless the reading of his word. According to God's timing, Jesus Christ will return to judge the world. Therefore, as his people live godly lives. In our passage this morning, we're going to see three realities about the Lord that speak to this. First reality we see is that the Lord is coming back. The Lord is coming back. Here Peter restates his purpose for writing this letter. He says that he is speaking to them in order to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He is speaking to the church and he is reminding them of the promises of God. He's reminding them that God spoke to them through the prophets and then through Jesus himself. And they would do well to remember what he said. One of the most uh, fundamental promises is this. The day of the Lord is coming. Christ will return to judge the world. It's coming. This, this, this earth will not continue on forever the way that it currently is. We, we are not given an eternity here. This world is temporal and it's ending. And God promises that one day he will return and he will judge. Peter says that we should remember the day of the Lord is coming because the prophets predicted it. So uh, one of the prophets, Malachi, said in Malachi 4, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will stubble, will be stubble. That day, uh, the day that is coming, shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with its healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall. So, so Peter says we should remember the day of the Lord because it was predicted by the prophets, the same prophets that predicted the coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, and uh, all of which they predicted came true. But then when Jesus came, he predicted it himself. Jesus in Matthew 24 says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, and we, he would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So, so God has promised that this will happen in the future. But, but keep in mind the context of this passage. 
it, it, in Peter. It immediately follows his rebuke of false teachers. So, so here we get some insight into what the false teachers were saying. They were saying things like, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So, so these guys were looking around, and they were seeing that, that uh, Jesus was not back, as he said. They were see, seeing that the world had continued on for their entire lives and for what seemed like an eternity to them. These guys um, said that he's not coming back uh, in a timely fashion, so they simply uh, tried to use this fact to their advantage. He says, where, where is he? It, it doesn't look like he's coming back. It doesn't look like God is coming back to judge us. Did God really say? This, this is our foolish tendency, is it not? Uh, maybe we're not so bold and brash to say it like the false teachers. Maybe, maybe we wouldn't say it out loud, and maybe we would even intellectually deny this. I don't think I could talk to any of you, and, and any of you would affirm that, right? But I, but I think this is where we often live. I think often we are lulled to sleep by the consistency of the life that's going on around us. We live day after day doing the same things after the same things, and we can fall into a rut where we don't even consider the things of God. We don't even live like this is true. We're not living like this is a reality that we have to look forward to. Does this happen to you? Are you on cruise control right now when it comes to the Christian life? Are you living in a way that acknowledges God's promises to you? that he's coming back to judge the world. And that which matters most is not what happens here. It doesn't matter what your 401k is. It doesn't matter what your current job situation is. It doesn't matter uh, this or that that we have going on around us. What matters uh, ultimately is how are we living in light of eternity. I think often we functionally believe the same things as the false teachers. Um, the world's gone on this way for thousands of years. It's going to go on this way forever. God's in, not engaged with the world, so what's the point? Treating God like a watchmaker who wound the thing up and let it go. Um, and if this is the truth, then, then, then eat, drink, and be merry, right? So, so why is this worldview foolishness? Well, Peter argues here from three different angles. So first, he points to the internal inconsistency of their argument. Um, he, he, he says they're pointing back to creation. Verse 4, the scoffers were using creation as an example of God not interacting with mankind. And in verse 5, Peter says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God. They point to creation, and they unwittingly unravel their own argument. Uh, creation itself is one of the ultimate apologetics that God exists Peter points to what philosophers will call the teleological argument, that, that the, you look around the world, and the world shows God's creation. It shows something is ordered. It shows not chaos, but order. It shows something that had to have a beginning, had to have a creator. Um, God not only exists, but he interacts with his people. He made us, the earth, and everything in it. He made the skies, he made the sun, he made the moon and the stars. Genesis 1 tells us that the world was chaotic before God then formed land and formed animals and people and put order to the chaos. He is the creator God who is responsible for all of this. 
Something does not exist from nothing. Someone is responsible for this. God is responsible for creation. There is an internal inconsistency in their argument when they say, look around, everything stays the same. Well, look around, everything is here. Secondly, Peter points to the error in their logic by referring to the flood. So, so they're contending that God does not keep his promises, that God does not interact with mankind but lets them go on as if everything is the same. Uh, but Peter points to prior judgment, prior temporal judgment that we saw in the world. Um, God sent a flood to judge mankind. He says, by means of these, that is water and the word of God, the world that existed was deluged with water and perished. So, so God, in a very real and direct sense, interacted with mankind already, interacted with all of creation and bringing judgment. Genesis 6 tells us it's because of sin that God brought this judgment on mankind, saving only a remnant. The scoffers that Peter is addressing uh, are, are overlooking this, are choosing to ignore this event. God did not let everything go on as it went before, but he broke into space and time and said, no, this is not going to happen. You are living in wickedness. This will be judged. And it's no different today. We will not be judged with a flood boat. This world will be judged and everyone in it. God created the world and God judged the world for its wickedness. So, so, so what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you? What, what does this mean for you personally? When the, when the boss is gone, people often behave differently, right? Right, Jerry? When the boss is gone, people behave differently. So uh, when they're gone, you think, okay, maybe I can get away with something. I can slack off. I don't need to do what I need to do when he's here looking over my shoulder. Um, but what if they know the boss is coming back and he has expectations? He wants this done when he gets back. He wants you to behave a certain way while he's gone. What if he's watching what if, what if there is uh, some way that word gets back to him? People, people behave differently. Does this, does this not alter the way that you behave? Friends, your boss, your, your king is coming back, and he has high expectations. Do not take this lightly. If you really believe that this is true, does this not alter your behavior here, your priorities here, your demeanor here, the way that you love people, the way you show affection for neighbor, the way that you treat people in church? Does this not change the way that we act in the Christian life? If God exists, if God is returning, this has massive implications on what we do. The day of the Lord is coming. Jesus Christ will return. God has a perfect plan, and he will do this in his own time. This leads to the second reality that Peter points to. The Lord operates according to his own timing. The Lord operates according to his own timing. Picking up in verse 8, Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All right, so there's some cool things to unpack in this passage, but, but first I want to start with something that these verses are not. 
All right? So I've heard a lot of bad arguments for the length of creation based on these verses. So when it says that one day is like a thousand years, and like a thousand years is as one day, uh, Peter is not giving his commentary on the six days of creation. All right, Peter is not giving his take on how long it took God to make the world. He's also not speaking of a thousand years here as if it's some secret time lock to unwrap something about the millennium. It has nothing to do with either of those things. Uh, both of those heirs take Peter's words and rip it out of the context, and it loses its meaning. Peter here is teaching in this passage uh, that we are not like God. All right, we are not like God. We are created. We have a beginning. We have an end. We are temporal. Life here on earth will end. God is eternal. God is forever. He is never created. He will never be extinguished. God is eternal, and we, by comparison, are a vapor. Peter's referencing um, Psalm 90, verse 4, which teaches this very thing. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever Uh, You had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So so God, by, by the sheer fact that he is eternal, does not see time the same way that we see time. All right, so, so there's, there's a few different viewpoints that have been put forward here, and I think there's um, some merit to, to both of them. Um, one of them it says that, to some degree at least, God exists outside of space and time. So he doesn't experience it the same way that we do. He knows the past, he knows the present, he knows the future. Um, I've heard an analogy, and, and, I, and I think it, it might be a little bit helpful, but um, the analogy is a parade. So if, if you go to a parade... You sit on the sidewalk in your chair, and you watch the parade go by. So you see the marshal come down. You see the marching band. You see some fire trucks. You see, um, you know, politicians. Uh, If it's a good parade, you get a bunch of candy thrown at you. And uh, if it's November, you see Santa come by at the end, right? So um, you see the parade sequentially. You sit there. You watch it. So it's, it's like passing you by in time. That's how we... Uh, that would be analogous to how we experience time. Uh, and then I've heard the analogy applied to God where, okay, God is at the same parade, but he's on a building from high, high above. So he sees the beginning, the middle, and the end all at the same time. It's the same parade, but he's seeing it uh, differently. And, and, and the analogy breaks down, as all analogies do, um, but I think it can be helpful to think through it maybe uh, like that. Um, the, uh, the, the other way uh, that people see this is God experiences time at least somewhat the way that we do. Um, But his perspective is different because he's eternal. Uh, They've compared it to how time seems to go by faster when you're older. Um, Things seem to go by crazy fast. Now, uh, especially since we've had Allison, it seems like she was just an infant, uh, you know, yesterday. Um, And by percentage, you know, a week is a lot smaller percentage of my life than it is for her. So um, th- there may be some merit to that. But I, but I, but I think um, all of these things break down. The point is that God is eternal, and time to God is not the same as we see it. We're looking at 70 or 80 years, right, if we're lucky here. Um, that's kind of our focus, and, and we should be looking to eternal things, but that's, that's what we see. That's what we see in front of us. God is eternal, 
And so a thousand years to God is nothing. Uh, a thousand years to mankind is several generations. That's the point. Uh, one Southern Baptist puts it in very Southern terms. He says, the Lord does not reckon time as humans do. Well, I reckon that he's probably right. Peter's point here is that God is eternal, and he's not consider a long time the same way that we do. So think through the Old Testament. Genesis 3, right? Adam and Eve sin. Adam and Eve are judged. God uh, also, in Genesis 3.15, speaks of a redeemer that will come. And, and then thousands of years go by until Jesus comes. And Jesus redeems his people. God is not bound by our expectations or by our timelines. God does things according to his own timing. He will operate how and when he chooses. The false teachers were trying to use this against the Lord in this passage, claiming that the length of time some, somehow had to do with God being faithful to his promises. So irony strikes heavy again here as Peter points out the cold, hard reality to them. It says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All right, so, so there's a few things to unpack in this verse here, right? And, 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 and we'll start with the harder one, and then we'll move to Peter's main point. Um, but, but we've got to start here. So, so we talk a lot about God's sovereignty in salvation at Crossway, right? So it would be intellectually dishonest to just gloss over this and not unpack this verse. Um, this is one of those verses that will cause a Calvinist like myself uh, to do a bit of questioning, to do, to do some humble study, to try and bring this uh, into um, congruence with the rest of Scripture. So, so um, we see in the rest of Scripture passages like John 6 and John 10 and Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 and 2 and many other places that clearly teach that God is sovereign over all things. God is sovereign over everything, and that includes salvation. God is the causal agent from beginning to end in salvation. That's true, and I affirm this 100%. John Piper calls himself a seven-point Calvinist, right? And he's joking, but, but, that's, but, that's, but, that's, but that's true. Uh, but we here see that God hold, holds out repentance to the worst of sinners, willing that they grab a hold of it and turn to him. So, so how does this mesh with the Bible? with the rest of Scripture? How does this mesh with Ephesians 2 when it calls repentance itself a gift from God? A couple things, I think, speak well to this. First, first, we need to be careful how we talk about the will of God. God has a declarative will, that which he declares he will cause to happen 100% of the time. But God also has a desired will, that's that which he desires, that which pleases him. God willed the universe into existence. He determined that it would be, and it was so. That was his declarative will. Um, but God um, does not will that his creation, that those made in his image, would rebel against him. That is not what he desires. That does not please God. God is not pleased with sin, nor is he the author of it. It is not the desired will of God that we reject him. But beyond that, we need to recognize that this is one of those things that we hold in tension necessarily. God is sovereign over all things, including salvation. Um, and Peter affirmed this in the first letter when he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And yet, man is responsible. God 
is calling us to repent of sin and place faith in Christ. We must do this. Jesus himself calls us to this. Repent and believe the gospel. We hold both of these things uh, to be absolutely true. Tom Schreiner uh, hit the nail on the head on this passage when he said, better to live with the tension and mystery of the text than to swallow it up in a philosophical system that pretends to understand all of God's ways. God's patience and God's love are not illusions. They are real, but neither do they remove his sovereignty. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some call it slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is patient. God is patiently offering ample time and opportunity for sinners to repent. Recall the refrain that is used so often in Scripture, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is gracious, and he leaves man without excuse. He does not zap us right when we screw up, right? Right when we sin, we are not done. Right when we rebel against him, he does not judge us. He is patient with us. He is slow to anger, and he gives us time to seek repentance and seek after him. Uh, how many of you are so grateful that God was patient with you? That things did not come to an end while you were still running from him. How many of you are graciously being given time right now to repent and seek after Christ, even where you sit? Think through how this plays in your life. Think through how this is currently playing out in your life. Are you rebelling against God? Are you holding secret sin, knowing that you should repent and give it to the Lord, but you can't bring yourself to budge? Are you growing hardened in your sin? Is it just an occasional pornography problem? I don't really gossip that much. I, I only cheat a little bit on my taxes. Friends, God is merciful and God is patient, but God is also just and holy. He will not be mocked. He has granted us a few years on this earth and the day of reckoning is coming. Those who pursue a lifetime of sin will be judged for that sin. Those who repent of their sin and turn to Christ and trust in him for forgiveness and reconciliation will spend forever with him. Peter says that this judgment will come quickly. Verse 10 uh, says it like a thief. This is not something we will be able to see coming, right? He's given us a warning now. We don't get to pick and choose our timing. He's giving us a warning now, calling us to repentance now. We are called to obedience now. One day Christ will return, and we will be called to give an account. I, I remember thinking through as a kid, uh, my grandma would say um, when me and my brothers were fighting or uh, doing just general naughty things, which happened a lot when grandma watched us, she would say, would you want to be doing this when Jesus comes back? And, and, and I think the, the intention was good, right? She was appealing to a greater authority. Do you want to be seen by your Lord doing, you know, these bad things to your little brother? Our actions were not pleasing her. Our actions were not pleasing God. And we didn't want to be caught in the act, as it were. Um, so I think the thought's a good one. The day of Jesus is coming. Jesus will return. And when he does, we will not see it coming. We want to be found faithful. Jesus is coming back. And the Lord will do this according to his own timing. 
The third reality that Peter expresses here is that the Lord then requires wholehearted devotion. He requires wholehearted devotion. Verse 11, Peter says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Friends, this is the point. Jesus is coming back, and it's not about setting up a timeline, figuring out how it all is going to happen. He says that a life of holiness and godliness is the point. He's refuting those who say that God is not faithful in keeping his promises. God will ultimately not return. And why is he doing this? He's, he's not doing this because he has a preoccupation with end times or because he um, is, has an obsession to know the future. He's doing this to encourage us to lives of holiness and godliness. And this is always the point. The Lord is returning to judge. The Lord is not slow to keep his promises. And then he says, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? This is a rhetorical question, right? We know the answer to this. We should be living now in light of the future. As Christians, this is how we react when we think about Christ's return. We don't store up apocalyptic fantasies or build bunkers to protect ourselves. We pursue godliness. When we read prophetic passages, this is where our hearts and our minds should go. God is going to bring about the end as he sees fit. It is a terrifying thought. God will judge you for every thought and action that you have done. And without the righteousness of Christ, we stand condemned. We all stand condemned. It is our job here to pursue holiness. It is our job here to pursue godliness and to preach this gospel to a lost world who doesn't know it. Is this, is this where you're living individually? Are you pursuing this as Peter describes here? Are, are you look, looking forward to a day when our faith is, is sight? When, when you are with God forever? And, and does this drive you to want to personally please him here and now? Is that where you are individually? Is that where you are when you crack open the Bible for your morning devotions, when you spend time with the Lord in prayer? Is that even on your radar right now? Is that where you are? Is that where you're living individually? Is this where we're living corporately as Crossway? Right? We are called to be followers of Christ together. Is this where we are collectively working toward the kingdom? Toward, for God's kingdom, pursuing community with, with each other and, per, and sharing the gospel with the lost? Are we anticipating the day of the Lord together in response? Are we seeking his will then together? If not, uh, what are the areas that are lacking? What are the areas that you need to change? What priorities do you need to set? What, like we heard last week, weights and hindrances do you need to cast aside to get that done? Peter says that we wait for Christ and we hasten the day of God. We eagerly look forward to an eternity with him and we do that living lives of godliness. Peter is teaching here that we hasten the day as this takes place. This is, this is a life lived with proper perspective. Everything will be destroyed. All that truly matters in this life are things that are done with a view toward eternity. We don't get caught up in temporal worries or priorities. 
like the fabled musicians on the Titanic that were playing while ignoring the pending death. We don't want to waste our lives here while ignoring eternity. Peter encourages us to something different, something better. Live lives of holiness and godliness as we eagerly look forward to the coming of the Lord. According to God's timing, Jesus Christ will return to judge the world. Therefore, as God's people, live godly lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we humbly come to you knowing that even as we look at your word, we don't measure up. Father, I know this is true of my life, misplaced priorities, misplaced actions. Father, I pray that you would give us an eternal perspective. Pray that you would give us a heart and a mind that looks forward to the things uh, in the future and uh, does not get caught up in the worries of today. Father, I pray that you would give us this uh, direction collectively as Crossway and that in that you would be pleased. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.